Hi, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance Podcast number something uh, with Molly Klein in New York. Hello, Molly. Hello. And Mike uh, Petroselli in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, the um, bustling it, town, the bustling metropolis. Is it Petroselli or Petroselli? Petroselli. Oh, okay. Sorry. Hi, oh, Mike. So American. Um, yeah. So that's those. Those are our uh, participants today, and um, and I guess let's just sort of start. Molly. Okay, wanted I wanted to, to recap something. just because. Okay, so just before you start recording, we're talking about maybe we're heading toward um, Tafuri, Manfredo Tafuri, uh, important. Marxist architect and theorist, really important, not that well known in the US, right, but very well known in Europe and um, a, a post of John's from a couple years ago, but it actually connects to the things we were talking about before. So I just wanted to like recap a little bit about last, in the last uh, episode or the last discussion that we had, and then some of this you discussed different, in a different way with um, Guy Zimmerman in your last post, but so we have been talking about the development of television toward CGI and you know this sort of spectacle development, but also toward this fascist aesthetic. And in form, it was like originally you have the the franchise shows, police shows, and detective shows, and also goes with movies and stuff like that. That you showed it was liberal praxis. It was every episode would show a bunch of people. They would, the lesson would be you can fight City Hall but that you actually have to every day because City Hall fights back, right? So what it did was it showed ordinary individuals driven by principles reproducing the liberal compromise over and over and over every day, right? So that this is how the, and it says you can never abolish City Hall, don't hope for that, you know, it's not communist, but you can <laughs> hold your ground, right? So then, right. but then you got the soapification of these shows where, um, more and more it became, you know, kind of survival in Auschwitz. There were stories about, and the, the city hall became, turned into the matrix. It turned into an algorithm that nobody's making, that's bearing down on them. And you know, had people like rats in a maze trying to survive in this world. And that's Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere. Those were the 1980s, the neoliberal shows, the institutions are falling apart, democracy is falling apart, and what you see is heroic individuals just trying to survive in a Darwinian struggle, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then you got on, <clears throat> and then on eight, then cable was introduced, and um, you were making the old, you know, saying the old thing about, you know, it's Westerns with tits, but the thing is that it wasn't, it was, yes, they inserted the tits just at first, but then it transformed the whole genre. Every genre became either a sex farce or um, then the darker side was that it would be uh, serial killers, right? So it, it's either, a, it became picaresque. It became one individual, single shooter sort of thing in a right, solid state right, universe right. or these individuals and they were either going around fucking or they were going around killing people. And there was no sense that human beings were reproducing society. You didn't get a sense, right? So that transformed everything. And then, um, there was one, oh, I had a little, well, I'll stop there, but it's like, this goes into what you were just saying about Manfredo Tafuri or, you know, Christopher Alexander is another one that, right. one of the good guys. I, um, well, uh, uh, let me, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, 
I will just say a couple of quick things about Tarfuri. And he is important, and, um, but he didn't write a great deal. And he wasn't translated for a long time and into English. Um, uh, so he, he tends not to be very well known uh, in the English-speaking world. But the, and he's, I just encourage people to read him um, because I think he's quite important. But he said that in the 1920s, he was very critical of the direction of architecture. And he said really what architects were doing were simply creating plans for capital. And this is, this is kind of important um, because it, it actually ties into two things that I was thinking of this week that relate to the last show that, that Molly and I did. One of them is mixes, and we, we kind of have to talk about that if we're, we're talking about what is art. Um, and I, I came across a quote of Adolf Gottlieb, of all people, um, that, that art was the significant representation or rendition of a symbol. And the, the idea of what a symbol is is worth talking about too. But anyway, the, the evolution of, um, actually, you know what? I'm gonna read a very short paragraph here, very short, that I wrote, and because it ties into this, and it's just better than my paraphrasing it. Um, uh, mimesis is, if traced back to early humans, tied to fear and self-preservation, that the paralysis of the body was the price paid for the development of the self. And that self-preservation is tied to a, a dynamic with subordination and that the final surrender is death. Art does not literally depict reality for our reality, our perceptions and interpretation of reality is already compromised. Our way of seeing and certainly our vocabulary and grammar. So art must transcribe something by way of a complex excavation of our history in a sense. This is all stuff I've written about elsewhere. But the point here is that the mimetic, as Horkheimer said, becomes subsumed by various mechanisms of domination. And there is another aspect to obscuring the past, and that is the veneration of a mythic past by way of monuments. And, and this kind of ties into the Tarfuri, and then that people don't er, today societies, with a few exceptions, don't erect giant monuments in the town square. Um, they create uh, television shows or media events or Super Bowls or something, which become monuments to you know self-congratulation and, and, and whatever else you want. Now, we also had talked about Mike and Molly and myself about touching on acting a little, and I, and I think we will get to that. But um, the, the, the point is, in a way, for me, is that, is that mimesis and CGI are sort of mutually exclusive. I mean, by the time we get to a society that's reproducing itself in computer-generated images, we have hopscotched a whole, a whole number of steps. I mean, that's, that's at the end of the line. It is, and you see it in not just television and film. I mean, you see it in computer architectural drawings that are computer generated. You see, I remember they, they um, redid the town square in Krakow and they had to, because there was a water thing, a pipe broke or something. Anyway, 
they went in and they have these beautiful old stone paved streets from, you know, 1400 and they dug it all up and they repaved it with the completely uniform stones, you know, from a computer rendition. And it was hideous. It, it didn't even look as good as Disneyland. So um, the other thing, and then I'm going to let you guys jump in here. The other thing is that I was reading Michael Tossig, who's a strange, complicated guy, but he talked about, and this is mimesis too, that, that there is a, has sort of as society evolved, as capital advanced, there was a war against um, the, the mimetic, the free play of mimesis. And you see it in the way children's play is regulated, increasingly regulated, but you also see it in how societies tend to ban actors and and gypsies and all those, you know, street musicians, whatever, because it's too, um, it's, it's too disruptive of something that needs to be monitored and commodified and everything. And I'm just going to finally end with an aside here. My, I have two boys, twins, who are three and a half, and they get presents at Christmas and stuff, and these, these hideous kind of plastic toys trucks that actually talk there's actually speakers in them and they imitate Gosh. voices of people working and my kids hate them they don't they don't play with them um uh, mercifully uh but it's to take all creativity out of play and i saw yeah. my two i saw my two kids the other day running around with strings they had like foot-long strings they were holding up to their nose and they were running around making this sound i said what are you guys doing <laughs> Like, what are you? Because we're elephants. Right. The string, this just a piece of string tied to push to their nose. <laughs> they were just holding it up and they were going, that we're an elephant. <laughs> and I thought, that's how children play, right? That's, that's how children play. You and know, talk act. to themselves. They I mean, it's like they talk to themselves. Yeah. Right. And, and it's also what, like natural pedagogical methods. It's how children learn as well. Like children's play is learning. Absolutely. And, uh, they're, they're producing things. They're producing the world instead of being passive and having it implanted in them. Exactly. It's yeah. like what you were saying about the monuments, the kind of, they've been replaced by licensed Homer Simpson or the image of Bart Simpson, a licensed right. image or a logo, basically the logo that, you know, is just a lump of capital that takes an image form just to sort of hold it together as a brand, you know, just like you would it's, it's claims, you know, but it, it attracts the same attention, but the attention happens in a completely one-on-one -on -one sort of solipsistic way, a, an interaction between each individual and, a, and capital directly, you know, so it's very right, different right, than right. when you go to the Place Vendôme or you go to the Trevi Fountain to look at the Trevi Fountain, you know, this is a, it, so it, it directs sociality. It is an exertion of power. There's no question that there's domination involved in how the Trevi Fountain organizes sociality in Rome. <laughs> but right, right, right. It's a transformation from one kind of domination, you know, class domination, that, you know, you still also used to, all these things became vulnerable. I mean, that's the famous story of the Paris Commune is, you know, the people pulled down the statue uh, the the um, the column uh, with Napoleon on the top, 
you know, and then that became a big thing for the for the um, the counter revolution was punish people, and they ruined Gustave Courbet over it. They blamed him, and they said he had to pay to put it back up, and uh, ruined his life. You know, so it's right. that you know those things are do they're dominant, but they're also sites of you know this confrontation of two classes, and then you have you against you know something that seems matrixy the power of bart simpson and the ownership of bart simpson i mean <laughs> people think you can subvert it like the situationists love this idea that if you go around and sort of make fun of it or you use it in some other way but of course initially that did have some effect but then the capitalists got better at this and they realized that what they that they can use all that antagonism they can come out of, of they course. can monetize right. the situations the tournament ends up being subsumed to capital exactly and they have a theory that a coca-cola executive called it liquid and linked what they want is liquid and linked stories they want to create you know put coca-cola out there and you know let people run with it and that's the magic of something like that and that this is the, the same thing that Tafori was talking about it's the same thing that John was talking about with Guy Zimmerman about the CGI you know that it's um, it really is a hyper reality it's a Baudrillardian hyper reality um, and ironically of course we're seeing like the death of the last truly social monuments to capital um, as shopping malls shut their doors and you know these giant monoliths of just consumption are dying and uh, we're kind of just left to stare at them as they uh, replace these always horrifically built i i don't know who designed them or like what it's like being inside of a <laughs> casino and just the only just, goal is to buy things <laughs> and well, instead i of was just, just thinking that it's very much like a casino in fact. and like yeah. a teddy a teddy hamster run also you know they get their teddy <laughs> but also the um they, they're not just taking down the ugly things so now they've started to attack the the monument the great monuments of the new international style i mean they pulled down a building on park avenue that was i, I can't believe it wasn't landmark first they they pulled down a lot of 1920s buildings in the 80s things with reliefs yeah. you know and stuff like that i mean masterpieces not the channon building but things like that and then and now they the seagram's building is going to be next they the, that one on park avenue they just pulled it down i mean and because they can go another 20 stories now and it's just it's shocking i mean these are thing, masterpieces of 1960s architecture which was this the architecture of the post-war settlement, the the compromise, the truce um, right. between right. the classes, and and this is now they really want to go for a new kind of. I mean, we call it fascism, but it really has a lot of American roots, as fascism in Europe did, but American roots in the fantasies of the slaveholders in the Deep South, and of Jim Crow and that kind of absolute um, dehumanization of the workforce, that's a big factor that's coming. And um, it, it, that's going, and, but they're doing something totally new. You know, sometimes people feel that whatever is not capitalism has to be chosen from the menu of what already happened. You know, like you have to go back into the history, grab bag, postmodern history 
um, you know, tchotchke box and find a period and say, oh, this is what's happening, as if there can't ever be, you know, as if history really did end in 1989, when in fact, right. you know, what's happening now, yeah, but in fact, what's happening now is new, you know, of course, it's, it's always going to be new, it's going to be a new creation in conditions inherited from the past, as Mark said. Right. Well, I, I think it was Benjamin talked. I came mm -hmm. across this the other day too. That, <clears throat> and this is really true when you look at at the closing of these malls that were once the you know the sort of primary symbol of <clears throat> the commodity and capital and so forth. Um, and he said, you, "We ultimately you can never step outside the fetishistic living in capital under capitalism," um, and. And that is, that is kind of true. And, and that takes us a little bit towards, you know, the role of art and what art is and, and back to kind of what mimesis is. And, and um, within that, I, I did want to get to have everyone's thoughts on, on acting and performance. Um, but uh, uh, that, that, what we're seeing now, like in the in the shadow of the Corona event, you know, which is stunning now because they're they're backtracking, they're kind of walking back all of these earlier claims. I've noticed, yeah. like ah, it's actually kind of just a bad flu, and you know, they got their six trillion, they got they got the money, now they got they the money, and they shut down everything, and that worked fine, and people seemed amenable to it for the most part, scared enough to do it, and um. And so now they're, you know, since bodies are not piling up everywhere, they just figure, well, you know, we'll just admit, but beware because there's a second wave coming. Anyway, in the light of that, and because so much will not recover, so much retail, for example, will not recover from just these few weeks shutdown. Um, it, it, the only survivors uh, for retail are, are people with very strong online presence, as they say. Um, and more and more stuff, you're going to be encouraged to more and more simply stay home and shop at home and do everything at home because it's safer. And uh, the, the idea that going out, going outside is increasingly going to resemble having to be licensed to go outside. Um, yeah, you know, to here they have, you places. get a... If you're a um, if you're an essential New York State employee, you get a badge to walk in the street. That's already happening here. And you know, it's interesting. I was thinking of in the it, this isn't in the Kubrick movie, but in the novel of Clockwork Orange, that's where those gangs come from. They're being sponsored by the state and created by the state to terrorize people in the streets so that they stay at home and watch television. Right. Right. That was right. I was actually just thinking about Clockwork Orange last night um, and specifically how like the only defining feature of the entire novel is that the working class is dangerous to itself. Um, and I mean, to some extent, like the state is providing this terror, but ultimately it is the working class terrorizing itself. It is the increasing lumpenization of the working class. It's um, forming those gangs and making sure that people are out of work and making sure that the abolition of home ownership occurs and making sure that the abolition of like, you know, the public sphere has already occurred. 
Um, and I think that we're seeing it now. Um, Although it has a fascist twist, right? I mean, they're all speaking Russian to each other. Um, that's their slang. And it's a, it is a, a Hobbesian. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, it's a fascist assumption of what the pressures cause, right? Right. And in reality, we see the opposite occur so many times, um, whether it's uh, the situationists writing about the Watts Rebellion and uh, quoting the young girl who's a, social, who's a sociologist in town. And she says that um, people who used to be ashamed to say they were from Watts are now saying they're from Watts and proud of it. And uh, that gang members who would have slit your throat as soon as looked at you the day before were standing on the beds of trucks and passing out water and food to people. Um, the reality is that when the working class takes control of their own conditions, it's, ne it's almost never this kind of Hobbesian, Burgess-style internal never. terror. Right. right. We've, we've never seen it. But I the mean, assumption right. is that it'll happen. Right. It's like the way they talk about looting. Like, it's shopping. I don't know if you've ever been to a sample sale. But, um, you know, when it's a dollar, everyone's happy. It's, it's, really, it's really nice. And it's free, it's free shopping day. And that's joyful and wonderful. And why shouldn't people, I mean, be, why shouldn't people want a new sweatshirt or new shoes or whatever? It's just ridiculous. But there's, yeah, there wants to be this vision. I mean, of course, the situationists themselves are debord anyway, um, had their own racist, kind of racist fables about the Watts Rebellion. But it's 100% true that the that um, when people are liberated from uh, the overlords, like the last thing they do, the last thing you have, I mean, everybody, there's individuals, right? So individuals behave in individual ways, but the last thing you have is an increase in pred predation. I mean, the predation right, right. Is, um, is created by um, the rat maze. Yeah, right, well, I mean, that's... You know, and that's something that Benjamin mentioned too, that, that yeah. the, the barbarism and violence of capital that people are submitted yeah. and the working class is submitted to over decades and decades. And now we're seeing like half a century yeah. of this sort of acute uh, violence visited upon the working class. Um, and he has a whole kind of bit of logic and I wish I could remember the quote, but it ends with people develop a hatred of the life of the mind. And I think that is true. And I think that's part of the problem with when we talk about screen damage and, and this kind of the subliteracy that exists, because I think all that you just said, both of you is true, um, you know, left to their own devices with, without the lizard overlords, um, people are not going to devour each other. But they also have, have lost a lot of the capacity to, um, to, to sort of think and feel. I mean, things are so fetishized and so kind of alienated. Um, it's very difficult. And the very landscape is, you know, back to Tarfuri. I mean, the very landscape, Asper Jorn said this too, said there's like the symmetricalization of space. You know, everything re resembles the ex exchange value. And, and I mean, Los Angeles may be the kind of ultimate example of this, but it is, it the is the center a city. of the spectacle. Yeah, and it's the, a city that is defined class, class representation in a way is a, is connected to freeways, and you know which ones um, are are preferred, which one the ruling class won't take because it's too crowded, and the the new untouchable class, the lump and homeless, you know, suffering 
outbreaks of bubonic plague, they live under the freeways. So um, it, it has, you know, the very space of, of advanced capital has become abusive and, and aggressive. And, and I think that's one of the problems that, that, that the culture itself faces in a sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the idea of looting, I remember I did this thing on press TV about, about looting. Um, and Mike Davis talked about this 30 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's um, the police are there to protect the property and, and, and not to protect them. We saw that with Katrina, of course, in New Orleans and, and not yeah. the people. And, well, they, um, they, but it was a contrivance, right? Because it was stuff that was rotting. It was just a, a pretext. I mean, they wanted to crack down on people. Right, well, but, it's the, but it's the great symbolic crime. You're stealing yeah. things that, you know, are meant to be sold. It's you know, right, not that anybody actually cares about those things. It's that that's a, that's a huge affront to the, to the system or something, you know, on the right. I mean, but they things. contrived it because then they said they were bringing in free. I mean, it was obviously the government could have bought everything in that was in New Orleans at the time and said, okay, the relief is already there. So you just go take it. And instead they made this big deal like, oh, we're trying to get in with the water, but the, you know, the mud, we're sinking in the mud when there was water <laughs> in the town that the government could write a check for. I mean, it was, it was totally contrived, um, you know, boasting of the inanity of it and that it's not, you know, that it was, it was just a pretext to, uh, it was sort of, it was a Jim Crow moment, you know, the way well, that that's, the Jim I mean, Crow... Well, that's, I mean, you see that, you see that reflected in Holly. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, um, no. Uh, the, the, the one of the, one of the most popular motifs now in, in I don't know if we, hmm. you know, archetypes of storytelling now is white people taking the wrong off-ramp on the freeway, right? Right. Oh my God, we took the wrong off ramp. We're in a black neighborhood. Oh, I right. Mean, Grand I can give Canyon. you 10 films. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, that the maybe Grand Canyon. Um, bonfire. Or the after Land. hours. Is, after hours. Yes, after hours. I mean, this is. A, this is it just reflects the clearly the deepest fears of the white, you know, the affluent class. Um, right. Is that is that somehow they're going to go to the heart of darkness, which is, you know, taking the wrong off breath on the freeway where they will be met with, you know, bloodthirsty savages, Mandingo and whoever. In um, like a very physical way in Reading. So there's a river that separates uh, Missing, which is one of the top 10 wealthiest suburbs in the country. Um, and directly across a bridge, you can actually see the two fucking things from each other. Um, on the one side of the bridge, you have the city of Reading, and it was the poorest city in the country a couple of years ago. Um, and on the other side, you have one of the top 10 wealthiest suburbs in the, in the country. And, you know, these two things are directly across from each other. You have these um, beautiful houses inside the city that have been left to rot. And then you have the city selling away our public goods. Uh, the city recently sold our train station which is inoperable right now, to a brewery so that they can turn it into a restaurant rather than, you know, putting a restaurant in a train station that we could use for transit. It's connected right. to a railroad line that still functions and that we That's, use to yes. shift freight on. <laughs> right, and this kind of thing, I mean, it was, 
I, Mike is too young to remember, but you know, in the 70s, you couldn't do this because you had a moderately functioning democracy, which was portrayed just as, you know, um, uh, Boss Tweed was uh, as uh, as the most corrupt and monstrous thing because it was simply democracy, you know, like there were, and right. Um, right. and then in the 80s, this all transformed. The the wolves got, you know, the the um, the end enemy got control of the people's money and they used to have some influence on the spending of the people's money but they weren't in despotic control of it and and now it's just a mechanism you know for further exploitation but i wanted to say if we could since this is a good topic to go a little i'm going to make a little um segue here into the yes. acting thing because i was thinking about like acting like the the old i mean everybody loves hamlet right which is a big pun about acting right he can't he can't act he's um right. he's a he's a waiter because he's a bad actor so he waits and waits and can't act and can't um he can't um uh, actuate himself politically and that it was interesting to me, I, John, it was one of your blogs, I think after we had been discussing Herbert Blau, yeah. but there was one of the blogs, it was interesting that, and then um, Mike has been talking about this a lot, the early 20th century and the re kind of rethinking of acting um, is, a, is, a, um, is a big response to this, um, to modernity's idea of people becoming too completely disempowered, right, it, politically, that it becomes the whole political issue is how do you act, like, in both senses of the word. Right, right, right. Right, and um, so Pirandello actually, um, ironically, um, who for all of his faults was a deeply dialectical thinker, largely due to having some sort of working class hegemony yet, probably. Um, he, in his, when he made his first film, he uh, actually, right afterwards, made a comment that on the screen, even the actor is alienated from his own work because he's not performing for a crowd. There's nothing connecting him to anyone. All that it is is he becomes this kind of uh, simulation of a person. Um, well, that's really good. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a profound I mean there's there's a profound difference between whatever you call acting it's not really acting uh, you're being photographed for film. Which is not to say there are not great performances that somehow magically manage to occur, but that in theater it's not just that that there are live you know, a live audience and live actors and you're on this stage that is empty and then suddenly is not empty. Um, but that in theater, that performance is the product of weeks and weeks and weeks usually of, um, of repetitive rehearsal and the memorization of lines. I mean, in film, very few actors really memorize lines very very acutely because things are shot in, you know, short little, you know, bursts of, of film. And then there's a reverse shot, reverse angle, and the guy can check his lines again, the actor, and go back to that. Um, in theater, there's something very different going on. And in cinema, the actor is looking at the camera. I mean, he's rarely acting in a space with another actor, not in the sense that that happens on stage. 
And one of, the, I mean, I have acted a few times on stage. I did an Irene Fornes play at the Padua Fest. I'm not an actor and I'm probably really a terrible actor, but, <laughs> but I did it, Irene wanted me to do it. And I remember at the end of it, I was terrified. I had one scene, but I had a long monologue and I had to speak to these other actors. And it didn't hit me until I was actually doing it after this like just exhaustive rehearsal process with Irene, um, you know, who was, who was obsessively like, I mean, she, I remember she spent hours one day with my pinky finger. I'm serious about that. It was cocked at the wrong angle or something, but that, you know, she was very sensitive to gesture and, and, and how things were posed. And anyway, it, it occurred to me during the performance because I turned and I looked at the other actors and I thought wow they're looking back at me and we're in this thing together now yeah and it's really incredible like nobody else is in it just us because we're the product of all these hours of repetitive uh, you know memorization and rehearsal over and over and over and over and over and here we are and we're able to be in this thing with each other and it's and I it made me and I thought well this is why actors become so addicted to acting you know why they just want to do that over and over the really good actors yeah. um, and but there's fewer and fewer of those people you know I, was, I, I mean there are great film performances Paul Muni um, you know uh, I'm a fugitive from a chain gang back in the 30s all the way to Peter O'Toole and Brando and I mean there are great performances but but film is a very different it's a very different thing and and the acting is um, um, it's not exactly acting it's 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 much the camera's too important you're in this thing with a camera and if they're the good ones who are stage actors you know they have to sort of simulate they have to imagine that they're in that other circumstance but i think also that it's it's horrible for that it's actually a horrible soul killing damaging thing to keep uh having to reproduce these um these performances in that situation and then they have to keep their body their emotions their physiological reactions to fake stimulus on a hair trigger and then they become like a uh, very sensitive all the time Right. You know, they can, they undo their own socialization. I really believe like the reason celebrities, you know, they have, they behave badly. I was talking to Spencer about this and stuff, but it's happening to everyone now, you know, but it's the method acting. It may, you, when you normally, when you mature, you learn not to cry in public, you learn to control your emotions. If you go through acting training, you have to undo all that because you have to um, produce physiological symptoms for no stimulus, fictional stimulus. Yeah. And then now when the way that the, the TV and stuff has turned into rides and things, you know, where it's just manipulating your body, making you feel that you're falling off a building while you know that you're perfectly secure in your seat is undoing everyone's physiology. I mean, the physiology that evolved over a million years to make us functional. Well, and, let me just put in a quick aside. If yeah. you watch, I would suggest the thought experiment. There, there was a German show. German television is very interesting and German film even because it's not a big industry. And most of the actors you see in German TV and film are working yeah. stage actors. Right. You know, that's their primary gig. 
It used to be true of English actors too, but more and more that's not the case. But if you watch, there was a German show series, just a kind of odd, it was actually pretty good, called Beat, B-E-A-T, um, about this kid who's like a clubber and there's crime and blah, blah, blah. But the acting is so extraordinary. And you could tell watching it that these were stage actors. I right. mean, they, they, they were doing something different. It was as if they were in a play and they, they were relating to the space and, and, and the lines and the whole rhythm and pace of it. I thought, wow, this is like, it's like watching a play, it, you know, sort of facsimile of that. Um, but it made me acutely aware of what American television has really now become if, if you watch not just the jingoism and how reactionary and the recruitment films. For they the don't military. even let the good actors act. No, right? and they, they, but, they put them in a cage of stupid lines and in, in possibility yeah. and nonsense or that, you know, they put dots on their face or they have them flying up on wires. And it, you know, it's not, they don't let them do it. But, and, in, and this relates also to how we, everyone, everyone, not just the actors are being disempowered that we, the thing about those actors on stage is they are actually creating history, just like football players on the football field. You know, I mean, you know, whatever they're, right. this is a mode of production, like theater is a, a production and of, that's collectively done by skilled labor and then it's now you know it's uh, cgi or whatever you know uh, somebody will you know some uh, famous person fighting a cgi dog or whatever you were saying they're doing that fascist book and then um you know cgi wolves and um and then um you know something like that that is this is is it's really connected to how labor, it, we are laboring in the world now and not laboring. And now everyone's been thrown out of work, right? Like literally told to stay in their homes. It's, um, it's the, the culmination of a process of disempowering and the creation of this, you know, um, world government, basically. I mean, I, and now I, you know, that word sentence phrase has been shit coded by the far right wing but in fact you know this um, total ruling class control where we are now you know just like in the Farbenlager in Auschwitz you know I mean it, it's you're, you're just not even a laborer you're not producing and the transformation of acting uh, and which is the most important thing because everybody really does consume this Right, all right. the spectators consume these performances. It's training and it's changing the way people behave. You know. Yes, let me read you. So I'm gonna just. Yeah, I yeah. just happen to have this so because it's absolutely relevant to what you yeah. just said. And this is this is James Scott, and I forget the book, but anyway, um, he says the acting that comes of civility will be of less interest to us in what follows than the acting that has been imposed throughout history on the vast majority of people. I mean, the public performance required of those subject to elaborate and systematic forms of social subordination. The worker to the boss, the tenant to the sharecropper, or to the landlord, the serf to the lord, the slave to the master, the untouchable to the Brahmin, etc. A member of a subject race to one of the dominant race. With rare but significant exceptions, the public performance of the subordinate will, out of prudence, fear, and the desire to curry favor, be shaped to appeal to the expectations of the powerful. Now, 
I think that's actually literally what's true it is what has happened is literally true with American TV and film in a sense in a strange kind of way those re military recruitment series jingoistic you know sitcoms everything has has the military in it. but it is the performance of of self in a sense because it's not really acting it's this other thing is meant to appeal to you know the people that produce them and fund them and and the message they want to to get out there and it's subtle in a sense but yeah but, it's but it's, it's there it leads to this more terroristic function because yeah they're not interpolating the audience that well into the point of view of the film anymore and sort of, it, it's not populist anymore you know which used to be how you how you manipulated people like from the dawn of time is with the people's desire for love, desire for right to triumph, desire to punish the evil and reward good, et cetera, et cetera. And also desire to tell the truth and reflect the truth and make you feel more committed to your struggle about the reality. And now they don't do that that well. They're just, a lot of the shows are just terrorized. They're terroristic. They're messages from the overlord, from, you know, the Wizard of Oz. Right, right. Well, I mean, you look at, I, I, when I used to teach at the film school, I would show um, a scene from, just a clip from On the Waterfront, where Brando meets um, Eva Marie Saint, is it? And he and says her, 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 her hair's a hunk of rope. <laughs> no, but she drops her glove. <laughs> she drops her glove, her little white glove. And she's walking with Terry yeah. Loin. He picks it up and he doesn't hand it to her. He's just fiddling with it. He's talking yeah. to her and he's trying it on. So you have yeah. this big guy with this little girl's glove and it's so perverse, you know, yeah. it's so weirdly feminine and sort of oddly disquieting. Um, but that was one of Brando's things, you know, was the, yeah. the sexual ambivalence that was always there and, and almost gender ambivalence. Um, it's that, those kinds of perform, I don't see those kinds of performances anymore at all. You know, what you get is like what you saw in Marriage Story or, you know, whatever, um, in, in indie film. And it's a, yeah, it's, it's actually, just like children, children, yeah, or, you know, traumatized children uh, mimicking their parents. Mimicking it made me think parents. of something that was really, really adorable. Like there's an, an opera singer I love, um, Abdrazakov, Ildebrand Abdrazakov. And um, he has an Instagram account. I only go on Instagram to eavesdrop on the opera singers. And there were his little children. <laughs> and he, he's uh, Russian, I think, and or, you know, from one of the former SARS. And and his little kids who were like, I don't know, two and three. And somebody said, "In what does your daddy do for a living? And they, they were standing there going, ah, as if screaming. <laughs> and they were, they were so cute. But it's like, um, you know, little kids interpreting adulthood. And that's what you get in those shows. You know, it's like, how would, yeah. your, how would the nine-year-olds depict their parents' argument? Right. But that's exactly right. And it's, it's playing it being grown up, it's dress up um, yeah. to, to, to be grown up. And, but also and that, childish, right? Then they're also infantile. They're yeah, not because the up. scripts are incredibly infantile. And they, yeah, so they yeah. become infantile. No, I mean, there is, a, there is a real sense that 
that these are children, um, you know. Yeah, and, forever, right. and because they're dependent like that, and um, they're dependent on that. Sorry, Mike. Um, so I was just going to mention George Gebner for a minute, or George Gerbner, um, who, of course, was born in Budapest and ended up serving in the OSS. Um, he was a really brilliant telecommunications professor and ironically was funded by um, the, I want to say, Bell Telephone Company. Let me double check that. Um, yeah, the Bell Atlantic Professor of Communications. Um, and he ends up coming to refer to, he's the first person to coin the mean world theory, uh, which kind of ah, goes back okay. to what we were saying earlier. Um, yes. And he ends up calling television um, at one point um, the cultural arm of the industrial order. Um, he was very, very much aware of um, what was going on regarding this sort of, um, he once called it an anti-communication system because it functionally what it does is it shuts down communication. Like that's what we're really seeing here, right? Right. right. It intervenes. Right. It's, it's what we're talking about. It's like, yeah. It's like I'm talking to you and then suddenly a wall is put between us that's bouncing, that's mirrored on both sides. Right, the actors have to be infantile because there's not another person there engaging with them and it's always infantile to play make-believe at that level. Like if, you're, if you have an imaginary friend, you're playing make-believe the way a child does rather than like mm. acting. Right. <laughs> Right. And they're no, but profoundly, that's, so, but even kids are more interactive. That's, they, they're creating a non, they're atomizing people like physically down to the deepest physical level. And that's interesting about the mean world syndrome because that showed up really, really quickly. Well, John and I were talking last time that the, the screens, you know, in our lives, in our childhood were a percentage of our experience. The vast majority of our experience was playing with friends and then growing up and going to work and being in an industry, you know, where you're active. And then in the in the mean world syndrome is, is for those who don't know, it's that, uh, you know, people who watch television think that the world is full of threats that don't exist. They greatly overestimate, you know, how likely they are to be mostly killed by uh, whoever the racial enemy is or yeah. um, raped or um, fall down in their bathtub and die or, um, you know, all these threats out there, but they vastly over overestimate them just with a small amount of exposure to television. Right. So obviously we're seeing the effects now with the coronavirus and how, how they can actually get on the television. They don't have to lie, you know, with the WMD, they were lying about the capacity. You know, they were saying under Saddam Hussein's uh, throne, there's enough nuclear weapons <laughs> for the earth <laughs> seven right. everyone times. Is the, everyone is yeah. the Asiatic Kermit King. Right, so, right, but they were actually giving it, they were actually exaggerating, like they were giving wrong numbers, but now they realize that with a tone of voice, they can give you the right number, and, you know, they can literally say, oh, and the kitten is on the prowl again. The kitten is going to come into your house. <laughs> you know, there's a one, now there's a one in 40 million chance that the kitten will come through the air vent and kill you and then people will be like oh my god the kitten that kitten that kitten is scaring the shit out of me so now they go and they say you know 1,000 people in america have died of coronavirus they don't have to say right. it's a million people they can actually say the real number and it still scares everyone 
Right. Right. They right. and they keep comparing it to the Spanish flu, which kills twelve thousand people in Philadelphia alone yeah. over the course of thirty days. Thirty days yeah. to kill twelve thousand people. It's a truly a unbelievable number. Starting from right. a much smaller population base. That's the thing. They're not even well, people are so innumerate. But you know, it's like yeah, it's like these these threats, you know, it doesn't matter. It's the storytelling. It's the inflection. They can even right. tell the truth now with a certain inflection well, because they can, in because their it's, Yeah, it's that, it's that they can, um, they now say, well, 1,000 people have died in a tone of horror and yeah. concern. And then say, but don't compare this to the flu. Don't do that. That's wrong. And because that's right. exactly what you should compare it to, because the flu, you know, kills far right. more. So they say, don't do that. And then a minute later, they'll say something that's like vaguely contradictory. It no longer matters. Those contradictions no longer matter. It's, no, it's they don't. And the, it's the, the branding. They're able to brand all these statements. Like they're very successful because the only sane thing is to stop this hysteria, let people out of their homes and these lockouts, which are actually mass lockouts of workers, but that they're calling lockdown, right? But right. the, so, and this, that's the only sane thing. So, and they know they can't argue against it. They can't make any kind of sensible argument. So all they've done is shit code it, like the opposite of washing, like greenwash, shit code it by having it be the position of Bolsonaro now and Trump. You know, right. and that's the only way is they, it's the only thing left is this individualism. And that's why I, I, I was a little mean to someone on Twitter yesterday who was doing that, put your politics in four people, mean that you're supposed to take four images of four people from, you know, fictional people, real people or whatever, and put them together as an image of your politics. And I'm like, this is screen damage. This is the... Yeah. Perfect yeah. illustration of screen damage. And that's exactly what it is now. All there is is competing individuals. That's the only discourse that exists for, um, you know, the wired clerk's imagination is, do I want to be, and when they watch a show, that's why, you know, you can, you can, you know, there's no um, social process. There's no social relations. There's no... Um, praxis. There's only the expression of individual, you know, brand or individual oh, something. Th this is this is going to be my segue here then, because we were talking about segue to sort of mm -hmm. the Mises and the Frankfurters and all of that, because right. I think it's interesting that um, that you know, Adorno thought modernism held the potential to, you know, for social change and all of these things, that somehow there would be the re-enchantment of life and that it was, a you know, some f oppositional force to, to the, the, uh, the society of domination and, and what he and all of those guys called the disenchantment of life. And, um, and the mimetic is one of the denser ideas that that it, as he describes it, I mean, Benjamin had his own definition that was kind of a, um, a, a simpler one, but, but, and we've talked a little bit about it already, just touching on, on one of the podcasts anyway, with cave paintings and then children playing and, you know, on, and then Rene Girard has a form of this too. Um, and, and at the most simple level, you know, it, 
it's a sort of imitation or you see somebody walking down the stairs and their knee buckles and they fall, you feel a twinge in your knee um, and some sort of memory of it buckling and you may even imitate that gesture partially in some sort of unconscious way yeah. and so forth and so on. At the most simple level, that's it. When you get to Adorno, of course, it becomes this much more complicated um, issue that, that for him um, represented one of the only kind of means to step outside that, all the things we're describing, you know, all of these forces of conformity and um, homogenization and, and oppression and, you know, nullification of, of the dream life and fantasy and creativity and all of these things. And again, I, I see this so acutely in children now. I mean, being like such an old father and looking at this stuff this time, I think, God, I see so quickly what what kids are subjected to, what they're being sold and told, and 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 how not to be children. You know, this this regulation of um, anything that's disruptive. So, and that includes you know mimetic activity. And so, anyway, anybody who wants to comment on this as a as I go on, please do, because it's a it's a it's a really difficult concept, and it's it's important, I think, for talking about what is art, you know, what is the role of art? Does art have a role? And Adorno said kind of famously that the radical part, the, the radical quality of art is in its uselessness and also not in its content, but in its form, um, which is why he, of course, favored, you know, Beckett over Brecht, maybe incorrectly, but, but I understood the logic in it. Um, and maybe not is taking a accepting a accepting the status quo idea of useless that is a you know right. the utilitarian i mean a capitalist idea meaning that you know what what's actually useful you know it's the demonization of the idea of utility or the demonization of our needs you know like right. To right. say that it's contempt, it's contempt, like water to a thirsty person is contemptible. Should be, we should treat that with contempt because we never have a, a drought because we're the ruling class. Um, so yeah. you know. <laughs> and um, I think to some yeah. extent the form content distinction is false, and I think that Benjamin gets at that. Um, he mentions that he's um, doesn't see value in art with content, but with no uh, artistic skill and any more than he sees value in art with artistic skill but with no actual meaningful content um, and it's this kind of recreation of the mind-body distinction that is uh, so prevalent at all times really um, but it kind of goes back to um, before him the Kuznitsa poets whose manifesto I sent to Molly this morning um, mentioned specifically that um, they have maybe the best summary of content and form of anyone. Um, and they say that being suggests and determines form and itself is determined form. The content reveals the artistic means and itself is being revealed in the artistic means and portrayed by them. Our creative work have to capture not the spots of life which are similar to point, but all the space of life. 
The decadent bourgeoisie have no suitable means and inventive technique in its decadent art, and we have to seek them in the world literature, which are ascending to the life and power of the historical class. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I think that deformed content distinction is spurious, and I would probably argue that Adorno would, in the end, say that too. Well, he's going to um, say they're dialectical opposites that are bound. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And to some extent, that's true. Like, form and content are intimately related and also are ultimately kind of the same thing. Well, the, right, or that you're saying, you're using these abstractions to uh, to talk about different moments of a single process or something, you know, with valences or aspects of something that uh, you're having resort to these abstractions uh, for the convenience of understanding the unified or the, the process, it's the whole process. Right. Not, right. but then, yeah, I mean, Adorno, I mean, they do go into sort of making essences out of things or making, you know, they fall in love with their abstractions a little and then they, be, yeah, they reify them a bit. But if, but in the general idea, you know, to name these things, like to name, like with capital, you know, to name different moments of capital, you're not actually saying that out there in the world, there's a, you know, a, a, a little meeting of industrial versus finance, you know, everybody knows that, uh, you know, you, you get your financing for your car from the same people that you get the car from. <laughs> you right, know, like it's not, yeah, it's no, not, but it's, I yeah. remember, I remember teaching at the film school and trying to explain to, to students, some of whom were you know, hopelessly dense, but yeah. some smart ones. They try to explain what a metaphor was or what a symbol was. Right. <laughs> and it was often surprisingly hard to explain this. You know, they, they didn't really understand. And it had to do with well, a slight confusion about general and specific, right? But um, it's a spectacle. It's the, that's the speech yeah, of it. Yeah, but it, it is. It to be it so is. simple for children. And I mean, this is, children themselves come upon this themselves, right? There's something going on when they're two or three, they hit that screen. I don't know. I mean, there's like, I, I think what something Mike was saying about um, Stanislavski is related to this, like the, the, the development of the acting, like you go from an acting, a sort of fairly diverse ideas about acting, but a, a, a worldwide tradition of what theater is from the, Plato's ideas and demonizing mimesis uh, and stuff like that, but they go from, you know, a worldwide tradition that develops and then it really solidifies in bourgeois acting, but that there's an actor on the stage is both a type and an individual and that this is a, this is a dialectical pairing that you have to have a, it, there's something that's not and then in Stanislavski, it's like going to this idea that no, an actor's performance is the creation of a um, simulated individual who's just a random quirky individual. There's no, no more uh, right. a striving to match the individual existential biological limited reality of human experience with the social forces that form the types and social roles and stuff that used to be what the theater was about right well so then you go to something where it's a, it's you have to yeah. enrich this weird and you have to enrich the irreducible individual because of the loss of the social role right right 
you do well but i mean when you i i would talk to students again sometimes yeah. and say well but you know what is acting what is acting what is it that when you go into a play and an actor steps on stage you don't believe he's really the count of monte cristo right because yeah. you know you're in a theater and you know he's an actor so what is it that you're doing what exactly is that relationship you have with this performance um and essentially but it's with the ritual of performance and that you know it's like well you're performing a bunch of memorized lines that an absent author wrote and then it starts getting very interesting i think yeah mike what were you going to say to some extent i'm not sure that people do realize that people aren't that people are pretending to be another person on stage um, <laughs> well, especially with the Especially, <laughs> especially well, as all the people like, who wrote Dr. Kildare asking for medical advice, you know. Or they don't realize it about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that's for sure. And they don't realize it about Robert Downey Jr. when he plays Tony Stark yeah. in The Avengers. Oh, he is Tony Stark. No, he's not. Um, the reality right. is that Tony Stark is more like his character in A Scanner Darkly than he is Robert Down than he is Tony Stark. Like, right. Robert Downey Jr. is much more the uh you know degenerate drunky junkie drug dealer than he ever was the <laughs> billionaire scientist and you know i i don't feel uncomfortable saying that as someone who has an addiction who has addiction issues like you know there's a very real sense that people have just completely forgotten who robert downey jr is in relation to this character um right. and he becomes this uh and that he's the project partly the producer of that that, that it's, it's an actual relation of production. This is what you're not supposed to remember. Everything's magic. Everything's inherent. You right. Know, you don't like see the production zero. either. Yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, it's, yeah. And that, it's a primary that, difference. Those movies are, are teaching people that too, because they have the, all of the science, you know, they have an industrial military state basically being made by one, the capitalist himself at this, his own bench, his own science and, bench. And he is the hero of it. He is the, he is He's the, he is the singular great man who is able to produce and correct all issues. It's capital well, taking on, like pretending, disguising itself as labor. But it's interesting in the Diderot, the Diderot paradox, the actor, right? It's like, it starts with the guys are watching the theater, they're talking in the box, they're arguing, da, da, da. And the, it's like, then it raises like, why are, okay, so we watch this, we're crying, we're devastated. You know, they're watching my scene or something. I don't know, they're devastated. They're gonna be ruined by this, <laughs> devastated. They go to the, they go to the cafe to order a, a coffee and there's the actor who's just ruined them emotionally, like, um, you know, getting drunk and trying to pick up a girl. And he's not, he's not upset at all about what just happened. And he lived it. He made them feel it. So that's, they're like, well, how does that happen? That the actor comes on, you know, we're terrasse, we're ruined, we're crying, we, we feel <laughs> transcended. And he is right. just a jerk in this, you know, trying to pinch the waitress at the, after. You know, why is think, he fine? I think there's something, there's something in, um, because I always think of, you know, <laughs> Japanese no theater or Catholic, you know, the, in, the, I've seen yeah. India and, 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 or South Indian dance and the, the sort of very ritualistic, strict forms that are followed and everybody knows the story, right? These are not new stories. Right. Um, they are old myths and they're being retold again. And that was really largely what Greek tragedy was too, in a sense. Nobody was concerned with 
um, the story, they knew the story, there might be a spin on it and a perspective and the skill with which, a, you know, something fresh was brought to a very old story. But nobody was concerned with plots or, you know, reveals or second act turnarounds or anything, not at all. It was the an immersion in some kind of ritual that seems to me to be really significant and significantly lost in a sense. And when I watch television now, and forgive me if you're just going on a bit here, but um, when I watch TV, if I watch a cop show or a mini series, or they're now calling limited series, right. um, when it's a mystery, and so many are, some sort of noir thing, when it gets to the point, episode six of eight, where you, the audience is let in on who the murderer is or who the thief is or, you know, whatever, the reveal. And then the last two episodes are wrapping up in some clever way with some other surprise at the end, how that works out. I often find myself not watching the last two episodes. I mean, if I'm, this is just like, you know, like junk food for the mind anyway, and I'm just watching it to, you know, as I smoke a cigar or something, um, I can't even sustain that kind of rudimentary attention for the last two episodes. Because to me, what was interesting was not knowing. It was the not knowing that there was the potential for all kinds of ambiguous, strange, overdetermined stuff that might yet happen. And the focus today, if you, if you are, go to a writing class, a creative writing class, I love that they have PhDs in creative writing now. I'm still <laughs> pondering this. I don't know what that. Yeah. The Iowa means, School but, MFA program. Yeah, yeah. it's great. I mean, yeah. but, but you are, the focus is on plot and on story and that narrative has a certain kind of um, direction that it has to go and there's I mean the big sleep is one of the great um, you know scripts in Hollywood I mean Faulkner and Chandler and, and Howard Hall everybody worked on it it makes no sense it makes no sense I mean you can break it down and it goes okay this is impossible I don't know what this is it's you know but nobody cares either and that seems incredibly interesting because Today, there is, there is an obsession with, there's a new kind of formula, which has to do with um, spectacularizing the, um, that reveal, that right. reveal that isn't really a reveal often, that but it is really making spectacular and spending enough visible money on a reveal when I have a feeling that most people, even the most indoctrinated, don't care about that. Because, yeah, stories, I mean, stories, popular culture is ancient. It's, there's formula. The formulas are populist. They can't, and they've gotten rid of that. They want fascist formulas, and fascist formulas don't work. Like Umberto Eco said, you know, people who say they don't cry at the end of love story are lying. Because it's like saying you didn't put, you can afterwards critique how it manipulated you, but... It's like it's saying when you put salt in your mouth and pretending you taste sugar, you know, it's, it's actually right. physical. The, the formulas, if they're done right, they physically manipulate you and they, 
And the keys to these things are like, I mean, the most popular show up until, you know, the 90s or whatever was the telenovela that was never showed in the US, but the slave is Aura, you know, was, that's the, that's the formula. There's the slave girl who falls in love with the aristocrat <laughs> and, uh, and eventually gets him. And they well, don't used destroy to, yeah. the system, but they, they modify the system. And that, right. it will get you. You can't resist it. it no, I used to just, when they would yeah. talk about that, that I said, look, I, I cry at Pepsi commercials. You know? Right, yeah, you have to. I mean, I mean it's yeah. If you're not, there's something Because I'm human. With you. And then you were saying something about this other aspect of, of mimesis, the, the, when it gets psychoanalyzed and you get, uh, or turned into a type of psychology of the, that it's you know referring the basis of it is how you when you see someone hit in the face and you touch your face right, right. um and you and you do it as a reaction you don't do it it's physical it's an it's an instinct and and i see now hipsters you know they can look at the most violent television and they don't make those gestures that we made you know right. when they see someone having their head cut off whether it's on whether it, first of all they they react no different if it's film from Syria or it's a, a Tarantino and they don't reach for their throats, right? And no, that's very no, interesting. Let me just a quick aside. I'll just tell you a very quick yeah. story. You know, because when I spent my misspent youth in custody, some of it, and you know, some of the nicest, yeah. most decent, best, smartest people I know are behind bars. But I remember I was arrested on a bogus thing. I was later kicked loose. But um, I was in a holding tank, and they brought in this tall, slender black guy in his underwear, and and he had on a pair of gaiters and you know those silk socks that, and that was all he was yeah. wearing. And he got his phone call. And he got on the phone and he said, "Yeah, uh huh. Listen, I'm down at you know something holding tank. They oh got me. Uh huh. Pause. Pause. Ten years. I'll probably do ten years. Can you bring something to so and so? And uh, thank you. Goodbye. And it was completely emotionless." And I thought, Jesus Christ, this guy's talking about, he's facing 10 years, he knows he's down for 10 years, and it was complete eradication of emotion. Now that's learned, right? That's what you do. This guy's obviously been inside a lot. But I that's thought- That's parade, that's parade, right? That's yeah, but, dignity. This is adult dignity. Right, but I thought that's yeah. also, I couldn't do it, right? I right. mean, to get to that point, you have to have a lot of the human beaten out of you somehow. Um, well. But here, no, but that is self-control, also. You know, he's so, standing sure, there, already humiliated. Yeah, no, I mean, in a way, it's admirable yeah. and incredibly right. Um, I was. It goes back to Brecht on truth when he says that um, when oppression exists, uh, we should uh, call it obedience, not discipline, because when uh, there's admiration and discipline, when someone can discipline themselves, it's an honorable thing. It's a thing that we should admire about them. Um, but when someone can just give in to whatever exists around them, um, there's nothing admirable, admirable about that. And I think we see it in like, you know, he's a horrific fascist and a terrific writer, uh, Mishima. Um, yeah, no, I the love first time, The first time I read Confessions of a Mask, I sobbed because I felt so deeply for this character. Um, yeah. You know, the main character is this closeted homosexual who really hates himself um, and is trying to fit into Imperial Japan. Um, well, and fascinating. Did you ever see his performance in that sort of bad Japanese gangster film, the name of which escapes me? Oh, the one where he wears the leather jacket the whole yeah. time. 
Oh, it's yeah. Great. Christ, I mean, what is it? I forget the name of it. Boy, if you want to psychoanalyze gesture and body, um, you know, he's he's just, um, that's the film to do it. Mishima is well, so and repressed. No one does movie? gesture and body as well as Mishima. He is so incredibly, like that was his whole thing, was that yeah. Um, yeah. by killing himself, he was destroying his greatest work of art and showing that he can destroy anything that he desires. Like he publicly publicly kills himself in a you know traditional way. That was and amazing. This is an amazing story. I mean, and and yeah, he's a he's one of those fascinating um, conundrums, you know, because he is a royalist fascist, um, and yet and yet not, um, and yet so uh, contradictory and complex, and that those tensions are exist in his work you know in the writing. right and even in confessions of a mask like you're seeing this man who he's very clearly trying to blame these violent sadistic urges on his homosexuality he desperately is trying to pin it on that yeah um and the whole time it keeps coming back to well this child was raised in isolation this child was raised in isolation this child was raised in isolation and you're like wow uh Hey, Mushima, are we sure that we're not trying to cope through something else here, bud? And, uh, you know, he, he's like very much trying to deal with the fact that he was too frail to join the military um, in much the same way that this character who is uh, very weak bodied is weak bodied because he's homosexual, but Mishima can't, doesn't. It's a little bit like Pasolini's, I mean, one of the disturbing qualities of Salo is how much Pasolini enjoys the whole thing, um, and and I and he was obviously aware of this, you know, um, because he was too smart a guy. Um, but uh, it's a great film, and it's a great critique of fascism and and the sort of you know the anality and sadism and sadomasochism that is attendant in all of that. Um, but he's also you know, he's also drawn to it. I mean, that's the auteur, the the fingerprints of the 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 mise en scene is too it's too obvious to ignore in a sense. But anyway, okay. Well, I don't. Let's, I'm I'm going to dissent from both of those yes, things, please, like about please. how much he about how much he enjoyed it. But I was totally. But it's not important. I was, I was totally uh, traumatized by Salo when I saw it as a teenager when it came out. But when you're, I'd never read Confessions of a Mask, but as you were talking, I was thinking about the earlier things we were saying about Pirandello and what we've talked about Pirandello outside this, that, um, yeah, I mean, the thing about the fascists, the fascist intellectuals, and I want to separate this from the fascist program of the ruling class, which has exploits all this or whatever, but the, the fascist intellectuals, the bourgeois fascists and the petty bourgeois fascists who are lying around there to get um, utilized by, by a ruling class program, um, yeah, I mean they they're, they they are reacting. They they hate modernity, and they don't have yeah. a working class solution, right? So everything is about this mask thing, right? Everything is about the masculinity that's being asked of them, um, but they're not because they're not actually ruling class, or most of them, the ones who aren't ruling class anyway. We get this. Um, unwillingness. I mean, unwillingness to um, give up their uh, status uh, that they had in liberalism, which at least was that they had uh, their um, individual uh, 
civil libertarian, you know, but they, they, yeah, they so then believe that, they believe that all of these fascists who are kind of interesting, they fit into the same mold. Yeah, no, you're right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Younger and the metropolis and this whole thing. And then they come up with a terrible, then they come up with a terrible solution, which is to enslave the working class in a more permanent way to return to a serfdom. Well, there's always, so that yeah. they can there's always an outpouring of violence on some level at the end. Yeah. And, and oh, also yeah. their, their misogyny is all shared. I mean, it's, it's all textbook, it's all, and Klaus Tevelite really analyzed this like in the most persuasive way, despite many problems that I have with his, some of his, and his anti-communism or his anti-Stalin, whatever. But um, the, the, the misogyny that, that grounds all of this hatred of modernity, you know, and, and then you see it in some of the fascioid, uh, technically communists like Althusser. Yeah. And well, you see it also, if I might just say, I think you're just yeah. describing perfectly Tarantino. Um, yeah. You know, right. who is crippled by his misogyny. It, uh, he yeah. has never gotten past it. Although he was, he's become ruling class now, so he's got the reward that they don't get. Yeah. That keeps them resentful, that keeps them oppositional and dissident in a certain to a certain degree, although some of them became just good, you know, good fascists, but the ones who, who weren't, you know, who, are, who the fascists always had to treat, you know, kind of in a, in a, in a ginger way, you know, they, they, uh, they, they didn't get the reward. They didn't get to become, to become ruling class. Right, well, and Mishima kind of falls into that category where like his entire life, he's kind of, because he could never serve in the military because he was never the, um, ideal right. fascioid man, he yeah. um, still kind of ends up on the outside of the imperial order in spite of his, like, I don't know how else to refer to it, uh, cosplaying as his father, who was a samurai. And, like, right, and that's what he wants, right. He's like, but why can't the samurai, like, why is, why is there now an empire over the samurai? Like, that's the, right. that's the, that's the resentment, as you see it in Foucault and all these people, like, the samurai should, the only thing above the samurai should be God Almighty, you know, and now instead there's like the, some U.S. company. And it, it <laughs> and we see it with Nick Land, too. Oh, Like, Nick Land is great for this kind of, um, I mean, Nick Land has Go, a whole host of other personal Nick Land issues. Nick Land is not great like, in any way. I'm sorry. First of all, no, but like, personally <laughs> harassed me. But, um, <laughs> No, no but like okay, in, sorry, the, in the kind of like <laughs> misogynistic desire to um, be dominant over everything constantly. Um, like he founds yeah. a movement and then when he gets asked about it, he has the audacity to say that he is completely unaffiliated with it because they're fools and degenerates. Like, the no, they all read you, but bud. He, <laughs> Yeah, but he really, he really is a, is sub subnormal intelligent oh his, yeah his guy is a total idiot but he's also yeah he made all these um but it's like the nietzschean appeal you know the standard appeal like i am i am super i'm superman i'm super special i'm super smart nobody's as smart as i am and then people identify with that and they go oh that's me and then he says no the fuck that's not you that's me <laughs> <laughs> which is, well, I'm, which is, I'm gonna have to interject yeah. i think we're probably yeah. winding down okay. but we should probably do a second um i'd love to because we're just scratching the surface of a lot of this and i did want to next time we we should probably talk about the futurists at some point yeah um, with with technology and we've talked about flusser and the camera and and get back to that a little bit because i think it's really important um 
if we're in, in this in this discussion, um, uh, and and we're talking about aesthetics and what is art, and that 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 you know, on one level, um, technology is always an expression of the forces of domination and and so forth, or that that's one theory, and this is this is probably worth talking about, and I would like to talk more about. Um, architecture and Tarfuri for that matter, but there's so much to talk about. Anyway, there's let so me, but let me just say this is, this will wrap this up with, and Michael, um, I want to tell people where they can read some of your stuff. So where can they do that? Um, I have a blog on Wix that you can find at the top of my Twitter, which is um, at Prolet Cultus. Uh, the domain name is really long and kind of confusing. Okay, well, I will put it up at on Instagram. I will spell it out for people so they can go um, read your stuff. And I hope that we'll get you back for a second one. The three of us can do one more of these because uh, uh, because it's really fun. And um, and and I think we're we're touching on good stuff. And uh, I just want to say one thing before yes. we hang up here, mm -hmm. and that is, I'm looking right now. Sorry, I'm looking at my computer screen, and somebody has sent me the latest. AOC um, AOC video for herself and I'm looking at it without the sound on and she's absolutely talk about gestures she's doing Hitler but exactly like she looked at a Hitler video and she's screaming and with the hands and banging her hand and doing exactly Hitler and it's really amazing I have no idea what she's saying fascist orator but I she mean, she really she, it's so funny because it's like something that the that like the Harvard Lampoon would have come up with in the nineteen yeah, yeah no but 80s. I mean yeah I no I I'm sure it's not an exaggeration <laughs> to say that I'm sure because I've seen I've seen elements of that already with her um, it, I'm gonna amazing. send it to you everyone should look at it I mean it, it's funny it's making me laugh but it's really scary I hope <laughs> people aren't falling for this I think they're oh, not wow but... yeah uh, the like aggressive pointing it? and the but whole body her. jerking up and down. Yeah, and the it's one very... hand up and down, up and down. You know, she's uh, da 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 da. Look at this. It's amazing. Yeah, it's the it's, it's the very rhythmic pacing and the, imitating uh, a machine again. I'm telling you. Look at this. And, right. Uh, and but also her voice is very has that same like you know they talk about how Hitler to Germans you know sounded like he sounded like Cliff Clavin or something like that you know from Cheers. Right. Like the 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 pedant, the kind of you know um, petty bourgeois, provincial, uh, you know. Um, well, Hitler also changed over, over the from his early speeches to his later speeches. Because he also started doing like cliched imitations of Jews by the end. Oh God, I didn't know that. <laughs> no, it became really. I don't need to. Oh, it's just yeah. There's a whole. I'll spare myself. Not the name of the book, but there's a terrific analysis of his of his speeches. And there's a, I forget the photographer also, but somebody who shot him rehearsing his speeches. I had one of the pictures on my blog. Oh wow! And it's amazing. It's extraordinary. Speaking of acting, right? Yeah. So that okay, it's all so related. Anyway, thank you, John. This was great. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, guys. And I will post where you can read Michael's stuff, uh, which is well worth reading. And uh, this will be up on SoundCloud uh, probably later tonight or tomorrow morning, my time. That's Norwegian time. Okay. Thanks, great. guys. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us, John. Yeah. Ciao. Adios. Okay. Till next time.
Bye. Bye.